Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. For at least a couple of years, I have had Marie and Adelaide Lenormand on my list as a potential October topic. Uh, listener John requested an episode on her back in 2019, but I don't think she made it onto my short list right away. Lenormand was a fortune teller in France in the 18th and 19th centuries. And for multiple years now, I've been in this pattern where I pencil her in for late October, and then some other stuff comes up and shuffles the schedule around. And then I go, oh, whoops, uh, October's gonna be over. And I put the topic aside. And that has been kind of a relief every year because this one has some stumbling blocks in the research. It is way easier to find information on Lenormand cardamancy decks, which are... uh, named for her, and if, with one exception, everyone I have heard talk about these decks has talked about them saying it Lenormand, not Lenormand, as though it were French. Uh, Way easier to find information on the decks, though, than on her, and a lot of the information that is out there is contradictory, or it can't be substantiated, or both. One particular article about her was printed in multiple publications starting around 1845, and that seems to be the source for a lot of the basic information. One of those publications was Chambers's Edinburgh Journal, and it included this editor's note, quote, the above article is communicated by an English gentleman residing in France. We would be understood as not pledging ourselves for the literal correctness of all its statements, though neither have we any reason to doubt that it has been prepared from the best sources of information which may be available in the case. Uh, so that is just, it's just not, it's not a ringing endorsement of the accuracy of the whole thing, and that's sort of the foundation that this whole episode is built on. So anyway, this year I decided, let's go for it. 
And if it winds up coming out in November, fine. So here we are. (laughs) I kind of love the, look, we don't know, but we're printing it anyway. (laughs) Marie-Anne Adelaide Lenormand was born in Alençon in the Normandy region of France on May 27, 1772. Her father was a draper named Jean-Louis Antoine Lenormand, and her mother's name was Marie-Anne Gilbert. She was the oldest of their three children with a younger sister and brother. And today, you will see the family's last name as Lenormand, or as Tracy said in relation to the cardamancy decks, Lenormand. All one word, but you will also see it in the historical record as Le Normand, with the Le part being its own word, the article the. So Marie's father died when she was still a child, and her mother remarried, but then her mother also died, leaving Marie and her siblings as orphans in the care of their new stepfather. When he remarried, though, he and his wife wanted to start a family of their own, so Marie and her sister were sent to live in a series of Benedictine convents, and their brother eventually joined the military. Their stepfather seems to have supported them financially, but otherwise they didn't really have much of a relationship. Marie first started predicting the future while living at one of these convents. The 1858 book Remarkable Women of Different Nations and Ages by J.P. Jewett described it this way, quote, It was in the house of the Benedictines that Mademoiselle commenced her vocation by predicting that the superior would soon be deprived of her office for which ill-boding the young lady was subjected to punishment and underwent a penance, but the event soon justified the prediction. In other words, the abbess was indeed removed, and Marie also predicted various details about her successor. From there, Marie started learning everything she could about divination, prophecy, and fortune-telling. Here's how Frank Boot Goodrich described it in his 1857 book on the court of Napoleon, quote, She versed herself thoroughly in the annals of Greek and Roman oracles, in those of the Gallic Druids, of the prophets of Baal, of the Hebrew philosophers, and of the miracle workers of antiquity. She studied the interpretation of dreams and the doctrines of second sight, and at the age of 12 was a complete adept in the practice of judicial astrology, in the drawing of horoscopes, and in the combination of Kabbalistic figures. She examined the mysteries of the white of eggs and the grounds of coffee, but only to reject them. She inquired what degree of confidence was to be placed in the assertions of Plato, Aristotle, and Plutarch, that Socrates foretold the principal events of his own life, and in that of Tacitus, that Tiberius and Marcus Aurelius expounded dreams. She investigated the cures effected in the Middle Ages by amulets and the relics of saints, and the power of healing the king's evil said to have been possessed by the kings of France since the time of Clovis. Hey, if you're thinking, what does healing the king's evil mean? (laughs) Good news! You can look forward to a Saturday classic that will explain that. Maybe you've been listening to the show for a long time and you're now I already know. I know that one. So when Marie was about 14, she started to worry that she might never have a life beyond the convent. And she really did not want to become a nun. Her stepfather was living in Paris, and she asked if he could find her a situation there. He got her a job working at a milliner's shop where she learned to sew and decorate hats and also how to run a business and keep the accounts. 
She also continued her study of divination, including developing her own methods for palm reading and cartomancy. In 1789, just before Marie turned 17, the Estates General convened at Versailles for the first time since 1614. Uh, The Estates General was an assembly for representatives from the three estates, that is, the clergy, the nobility, and commoners, and King Louis XVI had summoned them to try to find a solution to France's financial problems, including an enormous budget deficit. Marie made her first major prediction in connection to this assembly. In the words of Frank Boot Goodrich, quote, she foretold the downfall of that monarchy, which numbered eight centuries of existence, the dispersion of the clergy, and the suppression of the convents. At Versailles, the three estates disagreed over how to vote. The third estate, or the commoners, was the most numerous, so voting purely by number almost certainly meant that the third estate would get its way. But if voting took place by a state, then the clergy and nobility, which were already more powerful and wealthier than the commoners, could band together to outvote them. This assembly ended on June 17th, when the Third Estate redefined themselves as the National Assembly, representing the people of France. This was a key moment at the start of the French Revolution, which, of course, did lead to the downfall of the French monarchy. All of the uncertainty and chaos around the French Revolution meant that a lot of people from all walks of life were seeking reassurance and guidance from fortune tellers. In the words of an anonymously written piece from 1845, Lenormand, quote, found the troubles of the times which unhinged the minds of all around her and filled them with alarm and anxiety, very propitious to her views. Even though fortune-telling was in high demand, it was also illegal. When Marie was 20, she started working with and studying under a fortune-teller named Louise Gilbert, who she may have been related to on her mother's side. Both of these women faced multiple arrests for fortune-telling, but they also had some very powerful clients who were able to get them released. One of Lenormand's clients during these troubled times was Marie-Thérèse Louise of Savoy, Princess de Lamballe, the friend and confidant of Marie Antoinette. According to some accounts, Lenormand and the princess conspired to free Marie Antoinette from prison, and this led Lenormand to be arrested and jailed. It's possible that this is an embellishment, though, and this imprisonment was just one of the times that she was arrested for fortune-telling Marie-Therese was imprisoned in August of 1792 and then was murdered not long after that during the September massacres, in which more than a 1,000 people were killed in prisons around Paris. Lenormand reportedly foretold the princess's very gruesome death. In 1792, Lenormand also reportedly had a session with revolutionary figures Jean-Paul Marat, Maximilien de Robespierre, and Louis de Saint-Just. She foretold Marat's imminent death and said that Robespierre and Saint-Just would die, quote, at the hands of an indignant people. They did not take her seriously until Marat was assassinated on July 13, 1793. When Robespierre and Saint-Just returned to Lenormand after that, she reportedly told them, quote, they would be devoured by their own work and become victims of the bloody drama which they were themselves enacting. Lenormand's relationship with her most famous client reportedly started during one of her imprisonments during the revolution, and we will get to that after a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While being held at La Force Prison starting in 1794, Marie and Lenormand received a letter from a woman who was being held at Carme Prison. That was Marie-Joseph Rose Tacher, wife of Alexandre de Beauharnais. Rose's husband had been arrested as an enemy of the revolution, and then a few weeks later, Rose had been imprisoned as well, largely because of her connections to him and his associates. She heard about Lenormand's skill at divination from one of the other prisoners, and she and several of the others had pulled everything together that they would need for her to draw up their horoscopes. They convinced guards to smuggle these notes from Carme to La Force. 
Lenormand wrote back to Rose that she was going to soon suffer the greatest of calamities, but that she would survive it, and then, quote, marry a man destined to attain the loftiest dignities and astonish the world. Rose was, of course, the future Josephine Bonaparte. Alexandre de Beauharnais was guillotined on July 23rd, 1794. Rose was released from prison a few days later after Maximilien de Robespierre was beheaded on July 27th at the end of the Reign of Terror. Louis de Saint-Just, who Lenormand had also predicted would be devoured by his own work, was guillotined the following day. Rose, who was not yet connected to Napoleon and who did not have Josephine as part of her name, had gotten her fortune told once as a child in Martinique. According to Lenormand's account of Josephine's life, this fortune teller named Euphemia had told Rose that she would marry twice, that her first husband would die and leave her with two helpless children, and that then her second husband would, quote, fill the world with his glory and subject a great many nations to his power. Euphemia also said that Rose would become an eminent woman. At this point, Rose's first husband was dead, as Euphemia had foretold. And although Rose and her husband had not been at all happy together, being left a widow with two children to support could be interpreted as a calamity. So Rose went to Le Normand's salon on Rue de Tournon to try to get more information on this great marriage that each of the fortune tellers had suggested she would have. And she took a friend with her, both of them disguised as ladies' maids. Yeah, a lot of people reportedly went to see her in disguise because of the whole illegality of fortune-telling. Lenormand apparently saw through their disguises immediately and told Rose that not only would she marry well, but that one day she would become empress. A fictionalized version of this scene appears in Alexandre Dumas-Père's 1894 novel The First Republic or The Whites and the Blues. In that novel, when Lenormand tells her this, In response, Josephine says, Empress, I, you are mad, my dear. Lenormand's popularity and that of other fortune tellers continued to grow after the end of the Reign of Terror, through the Thermidorian reaction that followed and into the establishment of the French First Republic in 1795. Some of this popularity was connected to the years of violence, upheaval, and change that everyone had been living through. People were just looking for reassurance and for some kind of idea of what they might expect to happen next. Yeah, there's a a level of irony here that because France also saw itself as this like pillar of rational enlightenment, uh, people were really into fortune telling. Well, that's why it was illegal. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For a lot of people, though, in addition to what Holly just said, there was also just a sense that France had gone through a revolution and the fall of the monarchy and then a massive wave of violence and death only to wind up with a situation that wasn't actually that much better than it had been before. So people looked back to earlier times and bygone traditions with a sense of nostalgia, and that included the idea that something might be found in ancient wisdom to restore a social and political balance. This also meant that fortune-tellers and occultists in France were often, but not always, drawing more from alternate readings of biblical texts and classical works. So things that could be seen as already part of French history and heritage rather than from sources that seemed really new or strange or bizarre. 
Rose had trouble supporting herself and her children after she was released from prison, but she continued to consult Le Normand. She made ends meet primarily by having affairs with wealthy men who were willing to support her and her family. And then, in 1795, she met Napoleon Bonaparte, who she married in 1796. It was through him that she became known as Josephine. That is probably a nickname he gave to her, maybe based on her name of Marie-Joseph Rose. Allegedly, Josephine took Napoleon to see Lenormand after they met, and Lenormand told him he would gain battles, marry a widow, conquer kingdoms, distribute thrones, astonish the world, and finally die in exile. Eventually, in 1804, Napoleon declared himself emperor, and Josephine became empress of the French. She kept consulting Lenormand extensively, both before and after becoming empress, talked to her about her own life and her husband's political and military pursuits. In Lenormand's own account, Josephine described it as a small folly to believe her predictions, but a greater one to doubt what she said. In Remarkable Women of Different Nations and Ages, Dr. J.P. Jewett wrote of this, quote, Josephine, as is generally known, was a firm believer in auguries and prophetic intimations. The early predictions of her future greatness and its termination has been so frequently repeated, without receiving any contradiction, that it has become a fact which no one questions and would easily account for the firm faith she reposed in the oracles of Mademoiselle Lenormand, to whom she constantly sent to ask, amidst other questions, explanations respecting the dreams of Napoleon. And when the latter projected any new enterprise, the Empress never failed to consult the reader of futurity as to its results. Jewett went on to say, quote, the disasters of the Russian campaign, it is said, were clearly predicted by Mademoiselle Lenormand. And it was from her also that Josephine received the first intimations of the divorce which was in contemplation, which premature revelation, unfortunately for the authoress, procured for her an interview with Fouché. So Fouché was Joseph Fouché, minister of police, as a side note, someone who's been on my list for a while. Uh, and there are a lot of accounts of Lenormand's foretelling of Napoleon's divorce from Josephine and how it might have led to problems for Lenormand. In one account on May 2nd, 1801, Lenormand met with Josephine at Chateau de Malmaison and told her, quote, You cherish projects, madame, for the advancement of your husband. Take care. If he should ever grasp the scepter of the world, he would abandon you, for he is ambitious. Nevertheless, you are destined to enact the first part in France, and the day is not far off. Josephine continued to consult Lenormand for years, and in October of 1809, Lenormand reportedly predicted that something nefarious would happen on December 16th. That is the day the Senate adopted a decree dissolving the civil marriage of Napoleon and Josephine. That is something they had each agreed to the day before. In some accounts, Napoleon had Lenormand jailed when he heard about this specific prediction, and that while she was in solitary confinement, she, quote, occupied her leisure by the evocation of spirits. But as is the case with many things about Lenormand's life, 
The timeline here is a little fuzzy, and there are some questions about whether her arrest was really connected to that divorce prediction. It is absolutely true that Napoleon did not like Josephine's consultations with a fortune teller or Lenormand's influence on her. But the events of December 15th and 16th were not a surprise to Josephine at all. Napoleon had told her he was going to divorce her at least two weeks before because she had not borne him a son. In a book Lenormand published in 1814, she claimed to have first predicted the divorce in 1807, but it's not clear whether that really happened. Even if it did, rumors about a possible divorce were already circulating by then, and Josephine wrote a letter in 1807 saying that Joachim Murat, Marshal of France and Napoleon's brother-in-law, was trying to get Napoleon to divorce her. The Normand's connections to Josephine had, of course, bolstered her popularity. She was fortune teller to the Empress of the French. That connection was gone after the formal ceremony of divorce that took place on January 10th of 1810. But it doesn't seem like the end of Josephine's marriage to Napoleon really affected Lenormand's popularity at all, possibly because people thought she had successfully predicted all of that. We are going to talk more about Marianne Adelaide Lenormand after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello! 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1812, two years after Josephine and Napoleon's marriage officially ended, Marie-Anne Lenormand met with Fortunata Humphreys, wife of Alexander Humphreys Alexander, and then with Alexander himself. Alexander and his father had gone to France during the Peace of Amiens in 1802, and then they'd wound up stuck there when hostilities resumed in 1803. Based on family lore from his mother, Alexander believed he should be the next Earl of Sterling, even though that title had passed on to other people. When he consulted with Lenormand, she told him that he would go through a series of trials and difficulties, but that he would attain distinction and opulence. Alexander and his wife were ongoing clients of Lenormand for the next 30 years, and this led to a very long and convoluted series of events involving forged documents that purportedly supported Alexander's claims to the Sterling peerage. One of these was a map of Canada with writing on the back, some of which was attributed to King Louis XV. Lenormand gave this map to Alexander, saying it had been left by two people who had come in for a reading the day before. Letters between Lenormand and Humphreys Alexander were used as evidence in a court case focusing on 17 forged documents that he was using to try to make this case, that he had this legitimate claim. Ultimately, a jury found that the documents had been forged, but not that Humphreys Alexander or Lenormand had created those forgeries or even knew that they were forgeries. Uh, Seriously, this is so drawn out. It could be its own episode. I don't know if it will, because the book of court documents about it is 500 pages long, and I, I found it dizzying to try to make sense of. It is not clear whether Lenormand was involved in making these forgeries or how much her predictions influenced Humphreys Alexander's decisions as he pursued his claim to the title. Napoleon was forced to abdicate the throne in April of 1814, following his failed invasion of Russia and other nations formed the Sixth Coalition to fight against him. He was sent into exile on the island of Elba. Lenormand, having predicted the failed invasion and Napoleon's downfall, started getting even more powerful clients, including Tsar Alexander I of Russia when he was in Paris after Napoleon's defeat. She also started writing and publishing books, some on fortune-telling and the occult, and eventually a two-volume, The Historical and Secret Memoirs of the Empress Josephine, Josephine died of pneumonia on May 29, 1814, before any of Lenormand's work about her was published, so she was not there to confirm or deny 
anything that Lenormand wrote about her. But Josephine's daughter, Hortense, described this book as absurd. Napoleon's exile on Elba was brief, and he returned to Paris in March of 1815. This kicked off a period known as the Hundred Days, which ended when King Louis XVIII was restored to the throne on July 8, 1815. The Battle of Waterloo took place during this period, and after Napoleon's defeat and the restoration of the monarchy, he was exiled to the island of St. Helena. Surgeon Barry O'Meara wrote about this in Napoleon in Exile, or A Voice from St. Helena, which includes a passage in which Napoleon tried to dispel the idea that he was an atheist. According to O'Meara, Napoleon said, quote, Man has need of something wonderful. It is better for him to seek it in religion than in Mademoiselle Lenormand. In spite of her connection to Josephine, it seems like Lenormand was always at heart a royalist and a supporter of the Bourbon monarchs. She claimed to have discovered prophecies about the Bourbon Restoration. One was known as the Prophecy of Orval, which supposedly dated to the 16th century and was written in the style of Nostradamus. It was interpreted as foretelling the rise of Napoleon and a young Bourbon prince being restored to the throne with the help of a great warrior. However, this whole thing seems to have been a fabrication. Le Normand continued to see clients in Paris through the 18-teens and 20s, and we have a lot of accounts of what these sessions were like. Because fortune-telling was illegal, her business was registered as a bookshop with a sign out front that read, Mademoiselle Lenormand, libraire. According to at least one eyewitness account, actual readings happened in a room behind a secret panel to avoid detection by the police. The entry room that people saw when entering the building was also furnished to keep from attracting suspicion. Reese Howell Gronow, who was a military officer and a member of Parliament, who was also described as a dandy and a writer of reminiscences, described it as, quote, plainly but comfortably furnished with books and newspapers about as one sees them at a dentist's. But in Frank Boot Goodrich's words, the room where actual readings took place was another matter entirely. Quote, The visitor to the dwelling of the Pythoness was shown into a room in which books, prints, paintings, stuffed animals, musical and other instruments, bottles with lizards and snakes and spirits, wax fruits, artificial flowers, and a medley of nameless articles covered the walls, the table, and the floor, leaving the eye scarcely an unoccupied spot to rest upon. The furniture of the Cabinet of Consultation was in maple. The walls were adorned with portraits of the Bourbons, with a painting by Greuze of great value, and with her own portrait by Isabey. Her cards, which were of large size and covered with colored hieroglyphics, were painted by Carl Vernet. Pythoness, if you're wondering, is just an archaic word for fortune teller or seer, something similar. Uh, Gronau makes this room sound even creepier. Quote, The walls of the room were covered with huge bats nailed by their wings to the ceiling, stuffed owls, cabalistic signs, skeletons, in short, everything that was likely to impress a weak or superstitious mind. I think this room sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm like, how can I recreate this room in my home? We also have various eyewitness accounts of what Lenormand did during a reading. Gronau describes her spreading out several packs of cards, quote, with all kinds of strange figures and ciphers depicted on them. 
Her first question, uttered in a deep voice, was whether you would have the grand or petit jeu, which was merely a matter of form. She then inquired your age and what was the color and the animal you preferred. Then came, in an authoritative voice, the word coupé repeated at intervals till the requisite number of cards from the various packs were selected and placed in rows side by side. No further questions were asked, and no attempt was made to discover who or what you were or to watch upon your countenance the effect of the revelations. She neither prophesied smooth things to you nor tried to excite your fears, but seemed really to believe in her own power. She informed me that I was a militaire, that I should be twice married and have several children, and foretold many other events which have also come to pass, though I did not at the time believe one word of the Sibyl's prediction. Diarist Francis, Lady Shelley, gave a similar account, quote, On a large table, under a mirror, were heaps of cards with which she commenced her mysteries. She bade me cut them in small packets with my left hand. She then inquired my age, à peu près, my day of birth, the first letter of my name, and the first letter of the name of the place where I was born. She asked me what animal, color, and number I was most partial to. I answered all these questions without hesitation. After about a quarter of an hour of this mummery, during which time she had arranged all the cards in order upon the table, she made an examination of my head. Suddenly she began in a sort of measured prose and with great rapidity and distinct articulation to describe my character and past life, in which she was so accurate and so successful, even to minute particulars, that I was spellbound at the manner in which she had discovered all she knew. Lenormand's predictions for Lady Shelley started with, you will soon be ill, but it will pass. And she fainted at the opera that night and considered that first prediction to be verified by the time she recorded it in her diary. Yes, since it was a diary, time had not passed enough yet for that entry to have anything else besides the fainting at the opera. Past podcast subject Washington Irving traveled around Europe in the late 1820s, and his journals from this period include anecdotes about Lenormand from some of his acquaintances. One was Henry Bulwer, British Secretary of the Legation, who found her, quote, prone to put questions and draw hints and conclusions from the replies. The other was Alexandre Florian Joseph Colonna, Count Valesky, who was the son of Napoleon and Maria Valeska. He said that he had gone to Lenormand, knowing that a woman he was involved with was planning to get a reading from her. He paid Leonormal to tell this woman specific things in that reading. And according to Irving's journals, quote, the lady's fortune, past, and future was told in a manner to astonish her and greatly to the advantage of Mr. Velevsky. After the July Revolution of 1830, Louis-Philippe became king of the French, and the government of France was established as a constitutional monarchy. It seems that after this point, Le Normand retired from fortune-telling. She bought land and a house in Alençon where she had been born, and when people asked her to read their fortunes, she said that she only did that in Paris. Le Normand never married or had children, and one source described her as never desiring or thinking about it. She also outlived both of her siblings. She had premonitions about her brother's death in service to the French army, and was informed that he had been killed after she had already bought her mourning clothes. 
she predicted that she would live to a very old age. In some sources, that was 108, and in others, 124. But she died in Paris on June 25th, 1843, at the age of 71. She's buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery. All of her belongings went to her one surviving relative, her sister's son, Alexandre Hugo, who was described as devoutly Catholic. She had become very wealthy, owning several properties and a very significant art collection, and he kept all of this, but he burned her occult materials, including her divination cards. It seems like other people had already started capitalizing on Lenormand's name while she was still living. For example, a book published in English in London in 1825 was titled The Oracle of Human Destiny, or The Unerring Foreteller of Future Events, and accurate interpreter of mystical signs and influences through the medium of common cards. This was attributed to Madame Lenormand, professor of the celestial science at Paris. It included a preface, a method for doing card readings, and meanings for a set of 52 cards. But this preface is signed Victorine Lenormand, which was not a name that she actually used, And the biographical details from this preface purportedly written by the author are just totally different from anything else written about Lenormand. Uh, I was not able to figure out other history about this work and where it came from, but it's so associated with Lenormand's name that there are a bunch of digital copies of it floating around the internet that, like, definitively lists her as the author. After she died, people started printing divination cards using her name. Le Grand Jeu de Mademoiselle Lenormand came out two years after she died. Jeu is the French word for game. This includes 54 cards and was developed by a Madame Breteau who claimed she had been Lenormand's student. Another deck, the Petit Lenormand, which, again, I mostly heard people call the Lenormand, was created in Germany in 1845 and includes 36 cards. And this is the one between those two that's probably the more well-known today. Each of the cards in this deck has a specific set of meanings, and during a reading, they are combined to create a sentence or a series of sentences. Practitioners usually describe this as a more straightforward and direct reading than something like tarot, which can involve more subjective interpretation of the symbolism of the cards rather than specific meanings assigned to each of them. Lenormand was incredibly famous and influential in France during her lifetime, but her reputation among other figures within France's occult revival seems to have been mixed. Alphonse-Louis Constant, known by the pseudonym Eliphas Levi, was a big figure in France's 19th century occult revival, and he described her this way, quote, Mademoiselle Lenormand, the most celebrated of our modern fortune tellers, was unacquainted with the science of tarot or knew it only by derivation from Etelia, whose explanations are shadows cast upon a background of light. She knew neither high magic nor the Kabbalah, but her head was filled with ill-digested erudition, and she was intuitive by instinct, which deceived her rarely. The works she left behind her are legitimist tomfoolery, ornamented with classical quotations. But her oracles, inspired by the presence and magnetism of those who consulted her, were often astounding. She was a woman in whom extravagance of imagination and mental rambling were substituted for the natural affections of her sex. She lived and died a virgin, like the ancient druidesses of the Isle of Seine. 
Had nature endowed her with beauty, she might have played easily at a remoter epoch the part of a Melusine or a Veleda. Or to put it more simply, another commentator who was paraphrased by Frank Boot Goodrich summed her up as, quote, witch or no witch, a certain share of admiration will always be due to her for having contrived to be believed in an age which neither believed in God and his angels nor in the devil and his imps. <laughs> do you have listener mail? I predict listener mail. I do have listener mail. It is from Jerry, and Jerry wrote... Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm writing to thank you for last fall's episode about E. Pauline Johnson, the Mohawk Canadian writer and performer. My husband's family has Mohawk heritage descending from his great-grandfather. He was admitted to the Mohawk Institute Residential School in 1902, a few decades after Pauline's brothers. We've visited the Six Nations Reserve in Ontario many times, and my husband and children are enrolled members, but somehow we hadn't heard of Johnson. So we gobbled up your episode and visited Chiefswood when we were there in July of this year. We were lucky to receive our own tour of the house from Quentin, staff of Six Nations Tourism, just in case he's a listener. Quentin, you led a great tour. Attached are a few photos of the interior. Pauline's writing desk in her bedroom, the travel desk she took on tours, and the front door facing the Grand River through which Mohawk visitors entered. And yes, the door facing the road where white visitors entered looked just the same. To pause from the email real quick, if you did not hear that episode, this house had two entrances, and generally Mohawk visitors arrived on the river uh, by canoe, and usually uh, white visitors came on the road via horse or walking or, or whatever. Um, So returning to the email, I'm also enclosing a photo from an exhibit in the Woodland Cultural Center, a museum on the grounds of the Mohawk Institute. During renovations of the school building, several items were found inside a wall, including the school application form for my husband's great-grandfather. This article contains a photo of the entire case with other found objects and details about the survivor-led efforts to continue searching the grounds. Only after we saw this form did we learn that he had a brother. Your coverage of someone who we did indeed miss in history class was such a gift to our family as we try to learn more about my husband's ancestors and their history. We are American and live far away from the reserve, so our opportunities to learn are mostly virtual. I'm also enclosing pet pictures for tax. Jitsu is the yellow one. Her name is a rough phonetic spelling of the Kanyankeha word Sicho, meaning fox. Harriet is the gray one, and she's part gremlin, and Doug is the cocker spaniel, our pandemic puppy who is actually a senior and was rescued from a medical neglect situation. He's the happiest dog I've ever had, and the moment he meets you, he loves you. Thanks again for all your work, Jerry. Jerry, thank you so much for this email. Honestly, this is one of the best emails that we've gotten in a long time, I think. I love these pictures from Chiefswood. It really struck my heart, the application form, and realizing that that um, your husband's great-grandfather had a brother, uh, that you had not known about before. <laughs> and then, of course, the animal pictures. Um, I hope I did an okay job of saying the word for fox. That was uh, not a word that I found um, a pronunciation for. But these, man, what cute little, what cute doggies. Um, I also am so happy to hear about a cocker spaniel who is the happiest dog that you've ever had and loves everyone he meets because I only grew up with high-strung Cocker Spaniels and didn't know they could be any other way. 
Uh, So thank you so, so, so much, Jerry, for this email. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and Pinterest and X thing or whatever. We still haven't started accounts on those other ones. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.